Father, thank you for Nathan. Thank you for Mandy and for their girls. Thank you for their heart after you. Thank you that I know that Nathan has spent hours with you over this, what he's going to speak now, that it will be your words, that his love for you is so, so great. And so, Father, I just pray that you will speak to us this morning through Nathan. I just thank you for him, and I thank you yeah, that we get this opportunity to hear more about you and learn more about this God that loves us so much. Thank you, Father. Amen. Amen. Cool. Hello, everyone. Um, sometimes, you know, in these moments, it kind of feels like it's the lone survivors that are left behind. Um, and a few of you I don't recognize, so I'm, I'm hoping that you knew. I don't have my glasses on this morning, so it could also be a fact. Eyesight is bad. Um, but as, he, as Ali said, my name is Nathan. I'm married to Mandy. I think she's there at the back. Um, we have two little girls, Elizabeth and Ruth. Elizabeth's almost three. Ruth is about three months old. Um, and uh, we went on holiday, actually, uh, a week ago. And we spent like three days on the beach. And, uh, but part of that time, we spent half an hour at this animal park. So at the end of the holiday, we asked Elizabeth, okay, what, what is your favorite part of the holiday? So she says, no, the snakes was her favorite part of the holiday. And uh, I love snakes, so she's obviously a, a daughter after my own heart. Um, so this morning, my sermon title is Raised for Our Justification. And uh, obviously, we're coming together this morning and we're celebrating Resurrection Sunday, what Jesus did uh, on Resurrection Sunday. And um, as we come to this this morning, I just want to remind us that what we're coming to is we're coming to God providing the answer for the biggest question in the world. And that question is, how can we be made right with God? Now, that question obviously assumes several kind of different things, which we don't really have time to get into this morning, but I'm happy, happy to talk to you about it. Um, but it assumes, firstly, that we're not right with God, that there was a brokenness in the relationship between mankind and God. So it assumes that we are sinners, and it assumes that God is the judge, and that one day we will be held accountable for what we've done. And then thirdly, it assumes that this relationship needs to be restored. There's a brokenness in the relationship, and it needs to be restored. And as we come to Easter, we remember and we recall the way that God provided the answer to that question of how can we be made right with God. Um, so this morning, I want to, I'm wanting to speak to uh, kind of two groups of people with an overarching theme of looking at what is the meaning of the resurrection. You know, we come uh, every year in Easter, we, we are reminded ourselves of the resurrection and what Jesus did. And I want to just dive a little bit deeper and say, but what does it really mean? Like, what did Jesus really accomplish through the resurrection or the gospel or even believe if God is real? I'm really praying that, that God would open up your heart and your mind to kind of see, perhaps for the first time or maybe in greater detail, just the good news of what Jesus did um, through the resurrection. And then for the believer, for us, and I know this has been my process in just preparing this, is just asking God just to, in a new and fresh way, deepen our understanding and give us a more rich understanding of what the resurrection really means. Cool. So, 
this morning I'm going to break this sermon up into kind of three key parts, um, and I'm just going to say them up front, which will hopefully help us to kind of track with what I'm saying. And firstly, we're just going to look at the history, like what actually happened, like a, just recount the events of Easter Sunday. Then we're going to look a little bit at why it happened, like why did the resurrection actually happen, and what was the significance of it. And then we're going to close by looking at what this means for us. Like, look at what, is the, what does the re- resurrection really mean, and then what does it actually mean for us, and how, it is, how is it applied to us? So firstly, part one, what happened? And now, kind of before we get into the events of Resurrection Sunday or Easter Sunday, I want to just kind of walk us through some of the events that happened in the week leading up to that. Um, so you'll see uh, a full week before that on uh, Palm Sunday, you see where Jesus kind of goes into Jerusalem and it's called his triumphal entry, um, which is kind of ironic because it's triumphal, but it's also very humble as he doesn't go on like a like trusty steed, like the strong horse, he goes on a, a donkey. Um, and then on the Tuesday, we see Jesus actually cleanses, I mean, sorry, on the Monday, Jesus actually cleanses the temple. So he goes into the temple and he cleanses the temple. On the Tuesday, he's challenged by religious leaders. Um, they kind of confront him um, in the Mount of Olives, and he gives this kind of elaborate prophecy about the destruction of Jerusalem um, at the end of the age. Um, and then on that Tuesday, we also actually see Judas is starting to negotiate with the Sanhedrin for um, his betrayal of of Jesus, which would come later in the week. Um, Then on the Wednesday, uh, there's actually kind of no biblical indication of what happened. Um, Some people kind of assume that Jesus rested on the Wednesday. But on the Thursday, we see the celebration of Passover, and we see the Last Supper. And Jesus comes with his disciples and brings them together, and they celebrate Passover together. um, And he initiates communion. He initiates the Last Supper with his disciples. Um, and this is actually what we did on Friday. We kind of celebrated this just as a community, and it was a really beautiful thing. There was just like a good bunch of different people, and we had it in our home, and it was just a beautiful moment to come and kind of celebrate and feast together and remember what Jesus uh, did on the cross. So on that Thursday night after the Last Supper, we, we see that Jesus goes to pray to his Father for what he was about to face. And um, after that, he's actually betrayed. He's arrested and betrayed uh, by Judas. And then... On the Friday, Good Friday, um, we see Jesus is tried and tested by Herod and Pilate, and he's eventually swapped out for like a well-known criminal, Barabbas, who was a murderer, and the religious leaders are shouting for him to be crucified. And like, they want Jesus. They want to take the murderer back, but they want Jesus to go to the cross. And Jesus is, is, is beaten and killed and tortured, and we see the significant moment as he dies on the cross and darkness falls on the earth, And the curtain is torn, and it signifies this moment where the new covenant is kind of ushered in, and all are welcome into the presence of God. There's no longer one priest who has to go once a year to kind of represent the people, but all who trust in Jesus are now freely welcome into God's presence. Then on the Saturday, we see Jesus is uh, wrapped up, and he kind of rests in the tomb on Sabbath Saturday. And this morning, we find ourselves celebrating the resurrection of Jesus on the Sunday morning. And I want to remind us that this is the most like, kind of climatic moment in human history of the redemptive plan of God. And it's the most significant thing that's happened on the earth throughout our history. Like, do we believe that? As I was preparing this, I was like, do I really believe that this is the most significant thing that has ever, ever happened on the earth? 
So let's go quickly to Luke 24. Uh, we're just going to read from uh, verse 1 of Luke's account of what happened in the resurrection. So it says, But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were told you, while he was still in Galilee, that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified on the thir- and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words, and returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of, of James and the other woman with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale. How crazy is that? It seemed like an idle tale. And they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb. Stooping and looking in, he saw the linen clothes by themselves and went home marveling at what had happened. So there we see Jesus was raised. Now this is a verified historical fact that Jesus our Messiah was raised from the dead. The Bible even tells us that Jesus appeared, after his resurrection, appeared to more than 500 people. And now it's crazy to think that, you know, when they, these women go back to the disciples and say, hey, Jesus was raised, that they actually don't believe what had happened. That the people who were kind of following him so closely didn't really believe what he was telling them. And some of them, uh, you see Peter going there and, and seeing it and believing, but some of the other disciples actually had to touch his scars, like they had to touch his body, and see the scorpion. So Jesus was raised. This is what happened. Jesus was raised. The resurrection happened. And as it happened, it was the mark and the sign of the ushering in of the kingdom of God. Now, I want us to just take note quickly. There's a small section where the women are kind of perplexed. And then these angels uh, speak to them and say, but, but don't you get it? Like, this is actually what Jesus said was going to happen. Like, you seem shocked uh, but you actually should have expected to come here and see him not in the tomb. Uh, so I want us to note that this is not God problem solving. You know, like he sends Jesus to go rescue the world. Oh no, mankind gets him, they arrest him, they kill him. And now God's like, what do I do now? Like, how do I solve this problem? I've got to now raise him from the dead. Um, but we actually see further on in chapter 24, verse, uh, verse 27, Jesus himself says that the whole of the Old Testament was pointing to this moment, that the whole Bible was pointing to the moment where Jesus would die and rise again. So I want us to understand that the death and resurrection of Jesus was always a part of the plan of God. And with that, it isn't, you know, God taking his son, dragging him, putting him on the cross, and he's like reluctantly hanging there, dying and then rising again. And neither is it the son who's like, I'm done with you, father. I'm going to go do my own thing. I want to rescue these people. Um, But it's the father and the son in union for the mission of their redemption of God's people. So the father's willingly sending his son, and the son is willingly going to the cross. So the resurrection was the redemptive plan of God revealed. Now, I want us to also just note quickly that Jesus wasn't resurrected kind of in just a normal humanly sense. So if we, we read other sections of the Bible, for instance, like Lazarus, he, was, he died and was raised again. Jesus' resurrection was not the same resurrection as what Lazarus experienced because Lazarus still had to go back and die again. But Jesus in his resurrection was resurrected into his new heavenly body, He was resurrected into the resurrection of the new age. 
where he would never die again. And again, that's part of, part of God and Jesus ushering in the, the new kingdom of God. He's ushering in this new era of a heavenly and resurrected body, one which we too will one day receive. So firstly, what happened? Jesus was raised. Secondly, why did it happen? Like, what was the significance of it, and what did it really accomplish? And uh, kind of as I asked that question, you might think, well, it's a bit of a silly question. Um, but actually, I think if you just kind of hang with me for a bit and we dig a little deeper, I think we'll um, find some gold here. So to answer this, I want us to t- just go quickly to a section of Romans 4, and it's a short little verse there, um, but it's this kind of statement of faith, and it's actually known as one of the first Christian creeds, which is like, this is what it means to be a Christian. This is what Christians um, believe. But before we read that, I just want to give us a little bit of context. So here in the book of Romans, uh, Paul is the writer, and he's writing to the church in Rome. And in a section of chapters 3 to 8, he's focusing on the idea of justification being by faith alone. So in chapter 3, um, he's, he's focusing on kind of like the theological like details. He's like spelling it out for us in detail of what it means to be justified by faith. And then in chapter 4, he moves on to uh, basically explaining this idea through two Old Testament illustrations. So he's kind of spelt out the details. Now he's saying, here's illustrations of what I'm trying to say to you. And the illustrations that he uses is the illustration of David and the illustration of Abraham, Two men who are like fathers of our faith. And again, through these illustrations, he's saying that even God's working through these two men in the Old Testament, in the Old Covenant, that um, the faith, their faith was always the thing that was counted to them as righteousness. Not their, good need, not their good deeds, their faith was what was counted to them as righteousness. That standing in the eyes of God, um, righteous is through faith alone and not through your good deeds. And Paul then connects it to us, and he's, he's kind of making it kind of quite clear. He's saying, whether you were before the Mosaic law or after the Mosaic law, everyone who stands before God pure and righteous is because of Christ's righteousness, which is put on them and applied to them by grace and by faith. And he speaks about how Abraham knew it almost in like type and shadow. He couldn't see it clearly, but he could kind of see the outlines of God's redemptive plan. But we now sit with the privilege of looking back with absolute clarity. We don't have to guess what God's redemptive plan was. We look back at the death of Jesus and his resurrection, and we know it with clarity. So Paul concludes this kind of discussion of what he's saying with these four verses, uh, which is going to be our focus now from, uh, from verse 22. And he says, That is why his, talking about Abraham, That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also, talking about all those who believe. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead our Lord, who was, here's the key verse, verse 25, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Now, I'm wanting to just spend some time just in verse 25 and unpack it for us a little bit. Um, and what, like, what does it mean for Jesus to be raised for our justification? Like, like didn't, didn't the death 
of Jesus, wasn't that enough to make us right before God? Like, wasn't that really the thing that drew us into the relationship with God? And I want to say yes, but I want to say at the same time, that's only half the story. That's absolutely true, but it's only half truth. In 1 Corinthians 15, verse uh, 17, which we're going to read now, you'll see that, that Paul takes it so far to say that if we do not have the resurrection, the death of Jesus is meaningless. Like if Jesus was never raised, what, what he did on the cross meant nothing. So let's read uh, from verse 13. But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and our faith is in vain. We are even found justified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are the people most to be pitied. So it's quite shocking. And like for me, as I was preparing this morning, this was one of the kind of key verses that like stirred my mind. Like how do we get some of the true meaning of the resurrection? Like why would Paul say something like this? And why is it so shocking to us? Like, like uh, to deal finally and fully with our sin. And I want to ask you, like, do you, did you feel that as you read that passage? Like what are you, what are you really talking about, Paul? So I want us to just go back to Romans 4.25, and um, hopefully we'll get a bit of perspective there. So I'm going to read from verse 24. It says, But for ours also it will count to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. So verse 25, we see two clear statements that Paul's saying here. And it's a tiny little verse, but it's really like kind of packed with a lot of goodness. Um, so firstly, we see Christ was delivered up for our trespasses. And secondly, we see that he was raised for our justification. So I want us to just unpack these two statements a little bit. Firstly, Christ was delivered up for our trespasses. So what Paul is saying here is that Christ was delivered um, up on account of our trespasses. So he's saying Jesus went to the cross because of our sin. Jesus went to the cross bearing our sin. God put him there, and Jesus, Jesus willingly went to take the curse of our sin. And um, this is important because I think even on Friday we touched on this a little bit and just looking at some of the significance of connecting what Jesus did on the cross with some, uh, an Old Testament perspective and what God was doing there. And throughout the Old Testament we see that God never makes a covenant with his people without blood. There's always blood. There's always a sacrifice that is connected to the covenant that God is making with his people. And on the cross, we see Jesus being that sacrifice for the covenant that God's wanting to make. But what I'm wanting us to understand, and what Paul's wanting us to understand there, is that Jesus went because of our trespasses. Our sins were the reason he went to the cross. And even with that Old, Old Testament understanding, in the book of Hebrews, we see like how all these Old Testament sacrifices, the, the writer to the Hebrews explains in Hebrews 9 that, that the blood of bulls and goats, that they were actually never worthy to carry the weight 
of what our sin needed. That the sacrifices weren't enough to pay the price for our sin. But he goes on to speak about how Jesus is actually the true and perfect lamb, the one who is worthy to carry our sin to the cross and pay for it uh, finally and fully. We see how all these sacrifices were just shadows of the final reality of what Jesus would do. And Jesus in in Luke 22 speaks about he is the cup of the new covenant. He's this cup of blood that's going to be poured out for us and for our sin. So firstly, Jesus was delivered up for our trespasses. And I think this is one that we're quite familiar with. It's quite easy to understand. Secondly, he was raised for our justification. So Jesus was raised on account of our justification. And uh, as I read that, I was like kind of thinking like, but like, what does that mean? Like, it kind of makes sense, but it also doesn't. And uh, I'm kind of asking a lot of questions this morning because that was some of my processes. I kept coming back to this. Like, what are you trying to say? Like, Paul, just speak English to me. Like, help me understand this in an in a easy way. Um, but uh, let's just go to 1 Timothy 3, verse 16. And uh, this kind of describes this idea a little bit differently, but I think it'll just give us some perspective. So verse 16, it says, Great indeed, we confess is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. So it's kind of a stunning verse. We see like a, almost like a sweeping summary of what Jesus did and what his mission was on the earth. But caught up within that is, is a small uh, phrase, vindicated by the Spirit. And here it's speaking about Jesus' resurrection, that his resurrection was a vindication. So what does that mean? His resurrection was a mark that Jesus was freed of the allegation and the blame that sent him to the cross. Jonathan Edwards uh, explains it in this way. He says, if Christ were not risen, it would be evidence that God was not yet satisfied for our sins. Now the resurrection is God declaring his satisfaction He thereby declared that it was enough. Christ was thereby released from his work. Christ, as he was mediator, is thereby justified. So we see in the crucifixion, we see Jesus uh, basically um, saying that he will accomplish salvation for us. And in the resurrection, we see God publicly announcing that that salvation was accomplished. And I want us to just briefly step back in kind of like Old Testament ideas around the resurrection, that the resurrection of the righteous was, was one of the great hopes of, uh, the, of Israelites. So in, in books like Isaiah, Daniel, and there even some traces in Genesis, there was the hope of the day of the Messiah. And the hope basically was that those, the people of God who had been so long oppressed um, by other nations would be shown, would be vindicated. They would be kind of like justified of this um, oppression that they had and that they would be acknowledged before God and before the world as his people. So they're longing for this day uh, of vindication. And we see Jesus in light of that, that Jesus is actually the one who, like the true Israel, um, the new Adam, he's the one first to experience that resurrection, that long-anticipated resurrection of the age to come. So Jesus' resurrection says something. It is the announcement of his justification. So this brings me uh, to the first 
kind of purpose in the resurrection, kind of a sub-point in that, that Jesus was raised for his own justification. Now, it might sound a little bit strange, like, why does Jesus need to be justified? Like, why does he need his own justification? But justification is a, it's a declaration. It's a vindication uh, of something. And Jesus' resurrection announces to the universe that he is the Messiah. As he's raised from the dead, saying to the world, he was the true Messiah. It's vindicating him. He wasn't a false prophet that went to die. He wasn't what the religious leaders thought he was, pretending to be God. He was the real Messiah, and because of that, he was raised from the dead. His resurrection is a sign that God is pleased with him, and the work that he had come to do is now complete. So if the cross was Jesus' payment for us, and the resurrection marks the sign of God's acceptance of that payment... So John Calvin, uh, he says this, he says, By his death, sin was taken away. By his resurrection, righteousness was, restored, was renewed and restored. For how could he, by dying, have freed us from death, if he had yielded to its power? How could he have obtained a victory for us, if he had fallen in the contest? Our salvation must thus be divided between the death and the resurrection of Christ. By the former, sin was abolished and death annihilated. By the latter, righteousness was restored and life revived. The power and efficacy of the former being still bestowed upon us by the means of the latter. Now, I want us to kind of just um, understand something just quickly, uh, which was really significant for me, is that the resurrection, in a way, is a sign of the restored favor of the Father. So if we look at some of the moments of Jesus on the cross... You'll uh, remember kind of like the way that he cries out to God in, in, in this kind of like feeling of abandonment that he feels on the cross. And what Jesus is doing there is he's, is he's connecting his feeling with what uh, David felt in Psalm 22. David felt abandoned by God and he kind of expressed it. And Jesus is connecting what he's feeling on the cross with that because he's, he's feeling a sense of social abandonment. He's feeling a sense of emotional abandonment and he's receiving the spiritual wrath of God. And now, I don't want to push this kind of idea too far because I'm not sure that the Bible allows us to, and I feel like we need to hold together the Trinity, you know, and the redemptive plan of God, that it was, it was God the Father and the Holy Spirit that sent Jesus to the cross. But I do believe that there was something in that moment that was torn in the relationship and in the fabric between God the Father and God the Son. As Jesus bore the sin of the world and darkness fell on the earth. But in the resurrection, we see this relationship restored. We see that the abandonment of Jesus' fault is returned to favor. That the relationship between father and son is restored, and the father again looks on his son with great joy and approval. So the resurrection is a sign and a mark of the father for his son. So that's the first thing. He was raised for his own justification. Secondly, he was raised for our justification. And this obviously follows out of the first one. And I want us to just quickly note that this here we come to the crux of what the resurrection means for us. 
Like, what does this morning actually really mean? What, do we, what are we celebrating this morning? What does it actually mean for us, and how does it apply to us? And Jesus was resurrected, and because he was resurrected, it was a sign of his justification, and through that, we can also be justified. Now, in, uh, I'm not that old, but I've uh, been a Christian for close to probably more than 20 years, and... Um, for me, as I was reflecting on this, I think most of my Christian walk is predominantly defined by the cross. Like, I understood the cross. I understood that, that God, that Jesus came and paid the penalty for my sin. And that's amazing. And it's beautiful. But it's only half the beauty. And I think what this often left me with was I felt like, you know, like God's okay with me, but I'm left in this position of kind of neutral. You know, like God puts up with me and like, ugh, not this guy again. Like, just do your thing, kind of. Um, or like, you know, God's dealt with my sin, but I better not mess up. Otherwise, he's going to be upset with me. Or I'm going to go like, kind of get into his bad books kind of thing. And as I've come to this again and again and again, I've felt like God revealed to me some of the beauty of, of what this truly means. That we're not neutral in the eyes of God. He doesn't just put up with us. He doesn't just be like, she's Michael, this guy. Here he comes again. It's like he actually, because of the resurrection of Jesus, because of the restored favor of God with the Son and our connection to the Son, God looks at us with love. God looks at us with affection and with delight. That because of the resurrection of Jesus, Hebrews speaks about how we can come with boldness into the presence of God. We don't tremble, like even on Friday we spoke about this, we don't tremble like a high priest going into the presence of God, sprinkling blood, like, please don't kill me, please don't kill me. We come with boldness because Jesus is there and Jesus is our advocate and Jesus is our mediator and God lovingly sees us come. He's not just like, oh, I wish you, didn't, you weren't here or oh, just, can't you just do your own thing? He's like, come, you're my son, you're my daughter. I want you in my presence. So then justification is not just kind of just cancelling of a debt. But it's also, it's the imputing. It's like kind of what theologians call, it's the imputing. It's the putting on of the righteousness of Jesus himself. So we're not just seen as neutral, but we're actually seen as righteous. So many of you would have heard, you know, justification. Some people explain it as just as if I'd never sinned. But what it also means is just as, as if I'd already completed a perfect life. So we're not just left in a neutral state. We're actually left as if we had already completed a perfect life or if we have righteousness. And that is because the righteousness of Jesus was accredited to us. So the resurrection shows the positive delight of God the Father and God the Son. And through Jesus, God the, the Father's delight is then upon us. The Father's delight is on the Son and we are the siblings you know, we're the other sons and daughters. And because of our older brother, the favor of the Father is on us as well. Now, I want to just quickly uh, kind of close with helping us understand how this happens. Like, what, what do you, like, I understand that because of Jesus, we are, we are righteous, but how does that actually happen? What does it actually mean? What does it mean for Jesus' righteousness to be imputed, that kind of theological word, to be put on us? What does that mean and what does it look like? So 2 Corinthians 5.21, that uh, says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. 
And this passage for me was so crucial because, again, it's like these two kinds of halves. It's saying Jesus was, who knew no sin was made to be sin for us, and I kind of always understood that, but never quite got so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And this doesn't mean that we kind of automatically do what is right, but it means that our position, our position in the kingdom, is a righteous son and daughter of God the Father. That God has credited to us the righteousness of Jesus, that he's put it upon us. And because of Jesus, we are seen in the eyes of the Father as sinless. Now, I want us to just um, quickly look at a, a kind of an illustration which I found helpful in trying to understand this. And uh, it's the parable of the wedding banquet. And I'm sure some of you will be familiar with this. But basically, ki- uh, guests are invited to the king's uh, celebration. And these guests are invited from different street corners. And they are brought in. And in Matthew 22, verse 10, we see, <clears throat> sorry, we see that the guests are described as the bad as well as the good. And now all the guests that are to come have something in common. They have a wedding garment that they are given to wear. And what they are to do is to take off the street clothes that they wore, their own kind of clothes that they would have worn, and to put on the garment that the king has provided. So we see they don't come representing their own backgrounds or their own righteousness, but they come with the garment of the king. And they are covered in the gracious gift of what the king has provided. And we see that in a similar way, we as guests into God's house have been given this pure white robe of Jesus, that we put this on, we put on his righteousness. And because we wear his righteousness, we are welcomed in to the king's celebration. That we receive this gift of God's grace by faith. And because we wear this gift, God looks at us with love and delight and affection that we bear the garment of the king. So just to conclude, what do we see as we come to Resurrection Sunday? We see that the Messiah has risen and that through his resurrection we can be made right with God, that God has provided the answer to life's biggest question. How can we restore the relationship with God through the death and resurrection of Jesus? We can have a restored relationship with God And not just kind of a neutral relationship, but a a relationship of love and favor as as God the Father, the the God of the universe, looks down on us with delight. So I want to encourage you, if if you're kind of looking in this morning, you don't really believe in Jesus or you don't believe in God, I really want to encourage you and urge you to just open up your hearts, open up your hands, and respond to the invitation this morning of Jesus that he's inviting you through faith to put on this garment and through that, putting on his righteousness, that you can be accepted and be put back into relationship with God. And then for us who are believers, and I know this has been me as I've been doing this, is just like to take a moment and really dig deep into the meaning and the significance of the resurrection, that we wouldn't be left just seeing ourselves as neutral. You know, God kind of puts up with us, that we don't have to deal with guilt that we feel but we better not mess up. Otherwise, we kind of like just that weight is heavy. But I really want to encourage us to, to ask God to reveal to you his love, his favor, and his delight. And, and connect that with the resurrection. Understand that because Jesus was raised, the favor of the Father was restored. 
And through Jesus, the favor of the Father can be restored to us. Cool. We're going to take communion together this morning. Um, And as we do that, I want us to uh, just to do that in in two key ways. We see in in Jesus' kind of discourse with the disciples in the Last Supper, he speaks about how what was about to happen, that he's going to go to the cross, and he spoke about his body and his, and his blood that would be shed for them. But then he also speaks about how this cup that he's drinking with them, that he won't drink of the cup until the fulfillment of it is, is completed. And uh, I feel like there's a reference there to Revelation 19, where there's the, the wedding feast of the Lamb, which is kind of like the final feast, which, which is the consummation of all that God is wanting to do in his re- redemptive plan. So I want us, as we take communion, as we look back to, with clarity at what Jesus did on the cross and through his resurrection, and at the same time we look with such hope toward the final end, where we will be in the very presence of God at the wedding supper of the Lamb, and that the world will be restored and peace and joy uh, will fill the earth. So you can go up and take the elements and then we'll take it together. Cool. I'm going to pray for us and we can just take them together. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the price that you paid to restore our relationship to the Father. Father God, we thank you that you sent your Son. Jesus, we thank you that you went. I pray this morning as we remember what you did on the cross, that you would just fill our hearts with such joy. Just always reminded of, of uh, David in Psalm 51. We, we just praise that you would restore to him the joy of his salvation. And I so often find myself there. You come to these moments and you just feel quite neutral. And I just want to pray that you would just shake up our hearts in joy at what you've done for us, in gratitude at what you've done for us. And we want to remember what you've done and we want to look forward with great anticipation to the feast that we will have as your people as you restore the earth to all its beauty and splendor and wonder, as you restore peace and joy throughout, and that your kingdom reigns fully and finally. So we thank you for your body that was broken, and we take this in remembrance of it, and we thank you for your blood that was shed for us. We praise you and honor you. Amen.